Welcome to the SciDef Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm your host, Raymond Evans, and this is my co-host, Michael Fairweather. We're here to provide you with the cybersecurity news that matters to help you in the cyber realm. We are proud members of the Pod Bros Podcast Network. Check them out at podbros.com. Hey, hey, listeners. Welcome to episode 16. It's just Michael and I this week. No special guests, unfortunately. But maybe we'll have somebody lined up for next week. This week, we have some lovely stories. A little website heavy, but still some good stories. This week, I have fake EFF domain tricks users to deliver malware. And FireEye intern created and sold Dendroid malware. What do you got for us, Michael? I have PayPal vulnerability allows hackers to steal all your money. All of it? All of it. Not just a little? As much as they want. And BitTorrent patches flaw that could amplify distributed denial of service attacks, or DDoS. Let's get started with our first story there, Michael. Yeah, so PayPal vulnerability allowed or is allowing hackers to steal all your money. A critical security vulnerability has been discovered in the global e-commerce business of PayPal that could allow attackers to steal your login credentials which would allow them to get your credit card details and bank information all in unencrypted format. An Egypt-based researcher, Abraham Higazi, uh, actually discovered a stored cross-site scripting vulnerability in the PayPal secure payments domain. As I'm sure all of our listeners know and most people in the world, PayPal is you know, supposed to be a secure online payment store. Uh, you can purchase basically from any onla- online shopping website, and it enables buyers to pay with their payment cards or PayPal accounts, eliminating the need to store sensitive payment information. However, with this stored cross-site scripting vulnerability, uh, it is possible for an attacker to set up a rogue online store or even hijack a legitimate website to trick users into handing over their personal and financial details. So what you're saying is if you don't trust the website and have never bought from them before, pretty good idea not to buy from them and to trust, you know, big name, reputable websites, kind of like Amazon. By the way, Amazon's not paying us for that whatsoever. But hey, if you want to pay us for it, Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, actually, it's funny this week, um, you know, when researching for this episode, having read this article, I actually stopped a guy I work with from uh, using his PayPal account um, from a website that he had never bought from before. It's kind of funny and kind of scary how just because PayPal is on the website, you know, there's that little PayPal button. It gives us kind of a sense of security of, you know, if I purchase from this, this is going to be completely legitimate. But as we can see, from this attack, that, that's not always the case. You know, we should never feel 100% safe on the internet ever. Yeah. Because no matter what you think is the safest website out there to use, whatever is the most private website to use, actually, <coughs> Madison. <laughs> oh, God bless you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, that's never the case. Yeah. 
everything is able to be broken and nothing is safe. Yeah, that's the thing. You know, if you what they proved is that, you know, with this, you can set up some rogue shopping site and steal people's PayPal's account login for login information. At that point, they have free reign over it. So it's you definitely want to make sure that you're being careful. You know, you're being careful when when making purchases online. Why don't you tell the listeners how the store cross-site scripting attack works exactly? Yeah, so the worst, kind of the worst case scenario for this is that an attacker would set up a rogue shopping site or, as we said, hijack any legitimate shopping site. They would then modify the checkout button um, with a URL designed to exploit the cross-site scripting vulnerability. And whenever the PayPal user actually browses to that website, and then clicks on the checkout button to pay with their PayPal account, they're then going to be redirected to a secure payments page. And you can't see, but I'm doing air quotes. The page actually displays a phishing page where the victims are asked to enter their payment card information to complete the purchasing. And after clicking submit payment button, um, instead of actually purchasing, you know, paying for the product that you're trying to do, you're at the mercy of however much the attacker wants to, uh, to choose. So it's dealer's choice at that point, but not in a good way. The researchers did provide a proof of concept video, and we will place that that video in our show notes for everybody to see. Yeah, it's pretty interesting how they're doing it. Some good news with this. Just some. Just some. I mean, it, it's this this was a proof of concept and a definite possibility that it could happen. But Higazi um, actually did report this vulnerability to PayPal back in June. Yeah. And on August 25th, um, PayPal has said that they had actually um, confirmed the security hole and fixed it. Woo! <laughs> so that's good news. Other good news, Higazi was awarded $750 for his finding, which is the company's max bug bounty payout for cross-site scripting vulnerabilities. I feel like he should have got more. Yeah, it's a pretty big vulnerability that he discovered there. That should have been more. Yeah. But you know, it's, they're not Google, where Google has massive bug bounties out on their products. So, you know, the takeaway for this is no matter what service you're using, don't trust it. You know, and especially don't trust websites that you've never shopped at before. Yeah, I would I would take that maybe a step back. Maybe not trust it. Don't trust it. But just be cautious with what you're doing. I say don't trust Trust, trust no man. Trust no man. Uh, not only trust no man, but anybody who made purchases on kind of iffy websites prior to August 25th, check your statements in your bank and make sure that, you know, the transactions that occurred are legitimate. Anybody that had purchased anything on one of these websites that could have been affected by this are vulnerable to that attack. Which if it stores the individual's PayPal data, I would go in and change all your, your PayPal account information. Maybe delete your account and create a brand new one so that way that old account is no longer um, in use. Just make sure anything you have recurring set up, you set it up again. <laughs> Unless it's set up to reoccur on that shady website. Right. Delete that one. That's that's no-no. <laughs> Let's, let's just keep the bad guys out of your bank. That's what yeah. Psyduff is here for. We'll do what we can. 
We're going to interrupt this podcast here for a second to talk about our newest sponsors we have. You've got firewalls, intrusion detection and prevention systems, and up-to-date antivirus. You think nothing can penetrate your network, but you've forgotten about something. You forgot about your users. What can you do to help prevent that single point of failure? Training. That's what. And Cyberary is here to help. Tell them about it, Ryan. Thanks a lot, Ray. Cyberary, as you know, is the world's largest online cybersecurity training environment. And recently, we just rolled out an end-user security awareness training course. This training course is going to help you, the cybersecurity professionals out there, secure the largest vulnerability within your organization, which, as we know, is the end users. So check out Cyberary's end user security awareness training course. That's right. Cyberary is going to educate your users to help you eliminate that failure point known as users. Check it out at cyberary.it. Surprise, surprise, listeners. I know at the beginning we said we weren't going to have any guests on this week, but we had a surprise guest pop on. Hey, uh, this is Paul. That's right, listeners. Paul's back with us again. He decided to hop into this week's episode as a surprise guest, so he will be joining us for the rest of the episode. Thanks for having me. Now, on to story number two. BitTorrent patches flaw that could amplify DDoS attacks. Take it away, Michael. Let's do this. Yeah, BitTorrent just fixed a vulnerability that would have allowed attackers to hijack the BitTorrent applications used by hundreds of millions of users in order to amplify DDoS attacks. Vulnerability was located in uh, Library UTP, a reference implementation of the microtransport protocol uh, that's used by many popular BitTorrent clients, including uTorrent, Views, Transmission, and the BitTorrent mainline client itself. This flaw was actually disclosed earlier this month in a paper that was presented at the 9th Nix workshop on offensive technologies. DDoS amplification is actually uh, you know, becoming increasingly more popular among hack- attackers than hackers and uh, can generate very large traffic volumes uh, by sending rogue requests to a large number of servers. They spoof the original or the source IP address, which then tricks the servers into sending the responses back to the spoof IP address instead of the original sender, flooding the victim with data packets. Yeah, this attack um, reminds me a lot of an attack called the Smurf attack, which does the same exact thing, except it does it with ICMP requests. So you send a large amount of ping requests to a network, using a spoofed IP address, and then that entire network responds back to that spoofed IP address and hits them basically with a DOS. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, very similar, just using a different protocol in this case. Um, but the same same effect is going on. Typically, this type of attack um, affects protocols that rely on the user datagram protocol, so UDP for data transmission. Um, and that's because UDP does not perform source address validation. The, the researchers actually showed that uh, uh, UTP, the micro transmission protocol, is one of these protocols as well. This technique is really good for attackers. Well, it's not really good <laughs> because, you know, I really don't want to done against you. But it's beneficial for the attackers because it allows them to hide the source of the original traffic, which is known as reflection. And can also significantly amplify it if the generate responses are larger in size than the request that triggered them. Yeah, what they were doing is um, basically proof of concept was they they um, showed that an attacker would send a connection request with the spoof, spoofed address to the BitTorrent client 
um, and then forcing it to send an acknowledge packet to the victim. And then once that was sent, the attacker would then send a second request with the same spoofed address and a random acknowledge number to initiate a BitTorrent handshake. Because the spoofed address was not expecting um, these packets, it wouldn't it would never respond, um, which would then force the BitTorrent client to actually resend the data up to four times. And that was how the amplification of the traffic was worked. That is that is crazy. Yeah. Because you know when we see it with ICMP, it just sends it the one time. But the fact that BitTorrent is trying to you know initiate that handshake. Yeah, it's it's trying to it's, do the handshake with that. Yeah, yeah, because because BitTorrent is trying to accomplish a handshake here, it's keeps shoving that hand out up to four times. So you know, instead of the the attacker hitting the person once, it's just blasting those people. Yeah. What are your thoughts on this? I think it's awesome. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's funny, I've designed a couple protocols, and, and I was trying to think, you know, one of the, the protocol, like the network trans, uh, you know, network transport protocols, and I was just trying to go back and, and think if my my protocol was, like, vulnerable to this kind of attack. And it probably was, because this isn't something you think about, you know, as you think about... How how can I get the data there, the data to the endpoint, as quickly and as efficiently as possible? I'm not really necessarily always thinking about how is someone going to take advantage of this and and uh, do nefarious things with this. It's, it's great. It's just awesome. There so there are probably thousands of protocols out there that like you could do something like this. So you're saying it was the developer's fault? <laughs> well, I mean they kind of admit it here in the article. It looks like. <laughs> well, we, we fixed the protocol, and now we won't do this anymore. But on to the next one, right? <laughs> which which protocol can we hit next? <laughs> exactly, it's great. Yeah, we're getting better though. Uh, I've been working through reviews on uh, Ruby on Rails tutorial. A quick shout out for the Ruby on Rails tutorial that's out there. I think everybody who's done it knows it. And the guy who wrote it, he actually there's quite a bit of security talk in there, so I got to give him credit for that. He talks about a lot of the mitigating techniques and a lot of the, the things that he's doing, uh, not to you know go down a different path here, but to protect the web apps that you know Ruby, Ruby on Rails developers are writing from cross-site scripting and fun stuff. You know. So how did BitTorrent fix this issue, Michael? Well, good news. The ACK number now has to be verified. It can't just be a random acknowledge number coming back. Basically, the second request now that's coming back, the the um, attacker when they send it, that acknowledge number has to correspond with the acknowledge number that was sent. Um, and when you're sending such a large number of requests, it's going to be nearly impossible for them to be able to to guess and to figure out all of those acknowledge numbers. It still doesn't fully fix the problem. Right, yeah, it just fixed the amplification problem. Yeah, that's, that's really what's happening, and, and which is better than nothing. Sure. You know, it's, <laughs> you can still get DOSed. <laughs> it's just not going to be as bad. You need four times as many bots to do it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, DOSing is a, is a hard thing to fix. It really is. Um, especially the Smurf attack type DOSing is especially really hard to, to fix because... The computers that they're hitting aren't going to have aren't going to have the same security measures in place that you may have. 
so they will not be able to recognize that a an attack like this is occurring. Because if they hit a whole bunch of home users, those home users aren't going to be set up like a corporate network would be. Which is where we come in <laughs> to make sure that your network is set up correctly. Or if you're hitting Sony, you know, they're not going to be set up like a real corporate network. <laughs> So I think that's that's the problem, though, right? So this is designed to mimic legitimate traffic. Like, you could easily be going out to whoever the target is. Like, it could be, let's say, for example, the, the company or, or the bad guy do, uh, dosing uh, Google. Well, everybody goes to Google all the time. So I mean that's legitimate traffic. You're not gonna you're not gonna set your home PC up to just not allow traffic to go to Google, uh, and that would be the only really way that you're gonna stop yourself from becoming part of a DDoS attack if you have this BitTorrent client installed against Google. Unless you really like Bing, or Yahoo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wait, Bing still exists? Yes, it does. <laughs> or Cortana now, right? That's it's oh, no longer Bing. It's yeah, of course it exists because on Windows 10 you're you're forced to automatically use Bing, because that's how Microsoft gets people to use their products is by forcing them to use their products. Oh, and what's their what's their new web browser? It's not Internet Explorer anymore. Edge. Edge. Yeah. I was about to say it's it's something with an E. Uses the same exact symbol. <laughs> Looks just like Internet Explorer. Oh, that's great. But it's not Internet Explorer. It is Edge. It is a darker blue. They did change the color. Because that's edgy. It's edgier. See what I did there? <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, with, with BitTorrent now, they did go ahead and update and uh, fix this vulnerability. And this has been fixed since August 4th. It's not backwards compatible with older versions. And... You know, other third-party BitTorrent clients that use this transport protocol are not fixed as well. So it's it's the main BitTorrent client, like mainline client, that's actually been fixed. So if you're gonna torrent, go download the main client. So you're not a member of a huge uh, amplified DDoS against anybody. Yeah. Yeah. So well, if you're gonna BitTorrent, don't. Right. Well, no, there are legitimate reasons for having BitTorrent, such as Kali. Kali has a, a BitTorrent that you can download their OS on. There's a large number of. Um, yeah, I, but you're 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 trusting the crowd, right? I mean, unless you're, I, you, you better do an MD5 some, because I, I there was an article recently about how BitTorrent is enabling. It was thing was published at DefCon. The BitTorrent is enabling botnets because if I take a, you know, if I take Kali put some secret sauce in there, a little root kit that I own, um, and then package it up and seed it out. The next thing I know, I've got a botnet of 100,000 people. Shh, don't tell people my secrets. Come on. <laughs> Paul, you're right, though. You should definitely check the, um, the MD5 uh, some when you're done. And, and Callie actually puts that up on their website yeah. so that when you're done, you can check that. Yeah. Um, and, and a lot of companies that are doing it legitimately and legally they'll have that out there. So the user just has to actually take the time to not only download something like that, but to also be willing to check and make sure that it is the correct thing that they've downloaded. Or you so, use a direct download link and wait a little bit longer. But even then you should check it because then they've been hacked. But if they've been hacked, then whoever hacked them probably also updated the MD5 some on their site. 
It's that slippery slope. <laughs> now you're just talking about ninja stuff right now. <laughs> so, speaking of websites and attacks, there's a fake EFF domain that tricks users to deliver malware. Why don't you tell us about that, Ray? I am going to tell you about that. <laughs> A new spear phishing campaign has been discovered that uses a domain masquerading as the Electronic Frontier Foundation. The bogus domain, which is part of a targeted malware campaign, is designed to create a false sense of trust, according to the EFF. And by the way, if you don't know what spear phishing is, it's not a, a sport that you go out on a kayak and do. It's, it's a campaign that you know is directed at certain groups of people. Isn't that what Tom Hanks did in Castaway? Yeah, he did spearfishing. This okay. is not that. Tom Hanks is not trying to catch you with a pole. Okay. What about Wilson? <laughs> he, he's dead. <laughs> I don't know. Um, they show a body. I don't believe it. He just floated away. He could still be out there somewhere. <laughs> I have hope. <laughs> the, the group has urged users to beware of electronicfrontierfoundation.org as it appears to have been used in a spearfishing attack, though it is unclear who the intended target was. This was said recently in a blog post by the EFF. The attack is said to be relatively sophisticated and uses a recently discovered Java exploit, the first known Java zero-day in two years, which that may be one of the exploits that came out in the hacking team exploits. We have to look into that but didn't say specifically whether or not it was. The attacker sends a target an email containing a link to a unique URL on the malicious domain. Once the link is clicked, the URL redirects the user to another unique URL in the form of uh, electronicfrontierfoundation.org backslash URL backslash six random digits backslash go.class. We'll put that in our show notes so users can uh, check it out and know what to look for if they receive an email from the EFF. That link contains a Java applet that exploits a vulnerable version of Java. Once the URL is used and the Java payload is received, the URL is disabled and will no longer deliver malware. The attacker is now able to run any code on the user's machine and will download a second payload, which is a binary program to be executed on the target's computer. They checked the records and the domain was registered for August of this year under, which is a, probably a fake name. If not, if it's not a fake name, then the, the attacker is really dumb. It would be really funny if it wasn't a fake name. And it's suspected that the attack started on the same day. The domain is still serving malware and seems to be part of a larger campaign known as Pawn Storm. God, we are really, really good in the you know, cybersecurity community at making names. I love it. Heartbleed, Pawn Storm, Shell Shock. The current phase of the Pawn Storm campaign started just over a month ago and was first identified in October of 2014 in a report from Trend Micro, which said that the group behind the attack is possibly associated with the Russian government. Is anyone surprised? <laughs> they are at it again. The phishing domain has has been reported for abuse that was still active and the vulnerability in Java has been patched by Oracle. So watch out for phishing attacks. Make sure that you know the links that you're clicking on. Identify who they're from and where they're going. It may look legitimate who it's from, but 
anybody can can fake an email. Yeah, the social engineering toolkit can spoof an email from anybody to anybody. Don't trust your email. Don't trust any links. <laughs> Just don't use the internet. <laughs> so yeah, trust nothing. Trust no one. Internet's scary. Just unplug yourself. Go hide in a hole. Just don't, yeah, just don't use the internet. Because it's a scary place. I mean, come on, guys, use the internet. <laughs> just put your phone on airplane mode. <laughs> Wait, no, no. Use it to listen to us. Yes. Yeah. And then then don't use it again. Then airplane mode. Turn it off. Check in every week. <laughs> so this Speaking next out. guy that we're talking about was not a Russian. He Surprisingly was, he was enough. American. Surprisingly enough, he was not Russian. He was not a Russian. Speaking of malware... A FireEye intern created and sold Dendroid malware. There's a question that a lot of antivirus companies get. And that question is, do you write malware? You know, it's it's a big conspiracy out there. For some companies, they do. Looking at you, Kaspersky, with the recent report that you had about creating fake malware. So it's a big conspiracy that antivirus companies write malware. It's really funny, and in this case, it wasn't the company that did it, but it happened to be a worker at the company. A 20-year-old named Morgan Culbertson recently pled guilty in a Pittsburgh federal court to developing and selling Dendroid malware capable of hijacking Android phones, stealing data, and using the cameras to spy on innocent users. Dendroid is a pretty sophisticated piece of Android malware, and it's capable of evading detection by the security measures that Google put in place in the Android App Store. So, you, you know, we talked about it, and uh, Google is vetting all of their apps that they have. You know, they have an automated system that goes through all the code and looks for malicious code, and then they have somebody go through and check the malware and test it, and then say, hey, it's good. But apparently this individual created a piece of malware that was so sophisticated that it totally bypassed the manual and automatic validations, which is impressive. I mean, yeah. Just... So, yeah, I was going to say, I don't see any... Oh, yeah, it said could receive a maximum 10-year prison sentence. He's not going to prison. The FBI is going to hire this guy. Yeah, yeah, he's getting hired. He was going to sell the Dendroid malware on the Darkode crime forum last year. And then he also had an offer of selling it to anybody who wanted to buy it, the source code for $65,000. That's chump change, man. He, he's selling himself short. Yeah, yeah, for something that sophisticated. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, he, is, he is 20. I mean, he has, <laughs> he's got a pretty far life ahead of him. Uh, yeah, he is 20. I'm surprised he just didn't ask for, like, a case of beer. <laughs> <laughs> And some pizza. No, I don't think we can be surprised by this kind of thing. I think you're going to see more of this. I mean, we are creating this. Like, uh, you know, obviously, we do our best to say, don't do this. It's illegal. It's against the law. And we're, and the courts might set an example with this guy. But you know, this this community is fueled by people like this. Like we, I don't know. I I don't know. I don't think this is that surprising. I think this you're going to see a lot more of it. Culberson wasn't a full-time employee. He was just an intern of FireEye. And on his LinkedIn profile, he states, I completed a 12-week internship at FireEye as part of an advanced persistent threat team. As a mobile malware research intern, I improved Android malware detection by discovering new malicious malware families and using 
a multitude of different tools, automation techniques, and decompiling analysis heuristics. So he then took what he learned, didn't just divulge some of it. Or he, he implemented security techniques to block the stuff that he created. Yeah, he was an intern for 12 weeks up until his position was unceremoniously curtailed by law enforcement investigation. So he was a, an intern while he was trying to sell this on dark code. I like the word curtailed because that makes it seem kind of fancy. It does. It's a fancy way of saying you're fired. Right, <laughs> or you've been arrested. I'm sorry, but your position your position here has been curtailed. <laughs> oh, I understand. Thank you. You you feel a little sense of accomplishment until you realize, wait, I'm f I'm fired. Oh. That was fancy. So it's not a promotion. Yeah, they're gonna have a. I think they're gonna have a tough time hiring people without criminal records in this field, unless unless something changes significantly, which is I think what you know professional associations like the Military Cyber Professional Association, what they're trying to do, you know, we're trying to create a community, trying to create, and I think uh, like uh, Parameter Security out there in St. Louis, uh, they're trying to make this a profession, not a hobby. So yeah, I think if we professionalize this a lot better, I think we're going to, you'll you'll see this curtailed, um, but if we don't, then this is not going to stop. Professionalizing it and also putting in some kind of vetting process that's going to understand, you know, and, and who an insider threat is going to be. We can hire people and may not know right away that they're going to take what they learn and use it maliciously on the outside, but there has to be some way, some form of questioning in the hiring process that really, you know, kind of picks out those types of people. So this is tough, and that so that's expensive. Number one, and number two, it's, it's slim pickings as it is. I mean, you're lucky enough to find a guy, like especially on the government side. I, I I've heard countless you know government contractors lamenting over the fact that, well, we got to pay for the security clearance, and there's really no way of knowing. We vet we vet them as best we can, but we still have really crappy luck getting these guys through and getting clearances because like, it's just hard to find a guy to, that hasn't smoked pot. You know that that is into this kind of stuff. What, and what do you do about that? I don't know. So, yeah, you can vet these guys and, and you can say, yeah, we'll, we're going to have an extensive background check and we're going to make sure these guys don't have any criminal history and they're not, they're, they've never even leaned towards breaking the law. Or, you know, they're, they're just, they're Boy Scouts. But now our hiring pool just went to poor to, like, non-existent, you know? No, no, I, I think they need to do something like what Apple does. Apple is fantastic with their hiring process. I hate them as a company. I hate their products. <laughs> Michael knows this. He's yeah. pro-Apple. I'm anti-Apple. But they do really, really fantastic hiring process. I mean, how they, how they do theirs, and this is how other companies should do it as well, is when they bring on new people who they don't trust, which you don't trust anybody. No company should ever trust a new hire, ever, or even an intern. They put them on fake projects, and they could be on a fake project up to a year and a half or two years. Now, they get useful things out of the projects, like different ways of using different pieces of code and stuff like that. It's not a total waste whatsoever, but they're not going to be working directly on the new iPhone. You know, They're not going to be working on the new OS. 
they're going to be working on something that is going to help a portion of something else, but they're going to think that it's like a, a new Apple headband, you know, or something like that. Um, I'm working on the iTooth project. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They put them on fake projects that get them real results. And that's what these other companies need to do. You know, put people on projects to understand the people that they have working under them. Because then when somebody starts doing something malicious and starts doing something against the company's ideologies, like FireEye, that's clearly against their ideologies, creating malware and stuff like that. But if you were to put him on something where, you know, he learned malware analysis but didn't necessarily know how to create this formidable piece of malware, it, it would be a different end result here. It, it would have been something a lot less impactful than this. Yeah, I agree. That's, that's a, I mean, that's a good approach. And there are probably other approaches out there in industry that work. And my point about professionalizing the, this, you know, this community that we have, the security community, and making it a profession is that we don't have enough of these conversations. That's what I think the podcasts like this helps with. I think conferences help with. I think CTFs help with. All these things that we, we, we do to try and make us better at communicating. All right. On those notes, it's another fun episode. Indeed. This week we talked about PayPal vulnerability allows hackers to steal all your money. And from that we determined to look at your bank account for any weird purchases from any shady websites prior to August 25th because your PayPal account may be compromised. You should probably go change your PayPal account information. BitTorrent patches flaw that could amplify a DDoS attack. From that, we determined that you should probably use the main BitTorrent client if you're going to BitTorrent. We probably shouldn't BitTorrent because you don't know what the third-party people out there are putting into what you're downloading. Fake EFF domain tricks users to deliver malware. Don't trust anything from anybody in your email. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> If you're going to click on a link, know where that link goes. And if it, you're getting some kind of file or link from somebody, make sure that you know who it's coming from and that you know that it's coming, you know, you're expecting it. FireEye intern created and sold Dendroid malware. We need a better vetting process for people in the industry. Yep, that's what that comes down to. I was your host this week, Raymond Evans, and he was my glorious co-host, Michael Fairweather. And he was our fantastic surprise guest. Paul Jordan, thanks for having me. Stay safe, keep your network safe, and have a week. Have a week. <laughs>